0: Father, those songs that we just sang remind us again of the price, the cost of our salvation. We were not redeemed by the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the very Son of God, Son of Man. So, Father, we would ask that as we come to this scripture passage today, when we come to read just the amazing and tragic but yet, in many ways, a triumphant thing that Christ did for us. That Father, you would be with us, encourage us, strengthen us, we pray. Use us for good in our lives and to following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About a hundred years before Jesus died on the cross, there was a famous battle that took place just south of Rome. It took place, it was led by a guy who was a military leader that many of you have heard of because there's been movies made on this guy, there's been TV shows, a TV series. The guy's name was Spartacus. Spartacus was one of the slaves, he was one of the many, and he led a very, very popular group where many, many people followed him. They thought this was their chance to overthrow the Romans. And for a while, they did very, very well. In fact, they, they seemed to be winning, but then things seemed to turn against them. The Romans brought in another legion against them, and they started to lose. And as people started to run, other people started running. and Spartacus and the small group were finally left alone, and he died. And it was a terrible tragedy for them. Many of these people had really put their hope in Spartacus. They thought this was the, referred to as the third Roman uh, time that they've done this. And so many, many people were killed. Nobody's exactly sure how many people died. What they did had a pretty good count was how many people of these people, these soldiers and um, slaves, how many of them were part of the rebellion. There were 6,000 of them. And what happened is the Romans wanted to make sure that everybody knew that if you go against us, you'll pay the price. And so what they did is they decided that all 6,000 of these rebels would be killed. All 6,000 would be crucified. And so in Capua, about 130 miles south of Rome, from that point on in this famous Appian Way, uh, going up to Rome, what they started doing is just crucifying people all the way up. If you, the, if you do the math, 6,000 rebels among a 130 mile walk, it turns out it was about 46 crucifixions per mile. What it meant was everywhere you walked and looked, going up or down on the Appian Way, you would see dead or dying people, men and women and children, all the way there. It was a powerful statement for people walking through, looking each way, seeing the dead and the dying, realizing don't even think about trying to revolt against Rome. What's interesting is that was such a famous event where so many people were there. But if you roll the clock a hundred years and bring it to the time of Jesus, the Romans are still there, and they're still in control. But what's different here, there's not 6,000 people getting ready to to be killed to go to the cross. It was just three people. Three people who were going to go to the cross. Three guys, two of them who were either, depending on how we understand the text, they were either robbers or they're insurrectionists. Probably the same Greek word can be used for both. But the other one, the third person in that three, uh, group of three, was very different. This Jewish guy was different. He had no weapons. He was a famous teacher. He had no army. He seemed, you know, why would this guy, being asked to go to, and being told to go to the go to the cross? And so it was really a very, very strange thing. And for the Romans, it's like, Really? What has this guy done? I mean, it doesn't seem like he's an insurrectionist. It doesn't seem like he's a problem. What is it? But, of course, there were a lot of people, particularly upon the leadership, that had a lot of good reasons as why Jesus had to go. You know, for the Romans that day, for them, it was just another day at the office at Golgotha, at Skull Hill. All there were was more Jews, and they did that regularly. And yet what was so interesting is that here are these two guys, that they know they're going to have this terrible death in the next few days. But what they didn't realize is that third guy, that guy that was so strange and they wondered why he was there, his death, even 2,000 years from now, is still the most well-known crucifixion in history as far as we know. This morning in our passage, and we're in our passage this morning, What we want to do is we want to focus upon Mark's way of describing the death of Christ. Now, obviously, uh, we have Matthew, we have Mark, uh, what we have working on. We've got Luke, and we've got also the Gospel of John. But as you would expect, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives a very short, very terse description of what's going on. And what we want to look at is what is his perspective and what does he want us to do? Now, when I was looking through this passage and studying through this area that I wanted to work on, it seemed to me that there were three key words that kept coming up and coming up when we looked in this passage that I read just a little while ago. And these three words were important, I think, because it's describing what's going on. What we see here is that there's passages dealing with the fact of what is this about. And if you'll notice in your bulletin, if you'll notice in your bulletin, you'll see that it's written right out here. The title of the message was, no, it's not the first and the last Adam. It's the other one. It's the one for today that talks about scorn. It talks about fulfillment. And it talks about, what's the middle one? Anybody have in front of them? Irony, Okay. Most of us know all about scorn. We know how that works. But irony is something that most of us probably have not used that term probably since high school. If I was to say, now everybody here, tell me what irony means, we'd all come up with something, but whether it's right is another question. Irony is something where two things are there and it's not quite right, or there's something unusual about it. And I thought, well, let me give you a couple examples. Here's one. This was a sign that was on a building, I mean, on a door at a school. It said this, the procrastinator's meeting has been postponed. Okay, that's irony. It's like, well, really, they, these are the guys that ought not to be doing it. Okay, here's another one. Isn't it ironic that my millionaire friend won the lottery? In other words, why does this guy, he doesn't need the money. Okay, it's irony, it's ironic. Okay, here's another one that I think of, David Reyes. All right, isn't it ironic that I can't go to church today because I have a theology test I have to study for? <laughs> now, David, you better not do it because we, we all know it. it. Okay, okay. I actually know students that have done that. Which, you know, the irony is, if there's anybody who ought to be at church on Sunday, it ought to be a seminary student. And yet, sometimes it doesn't go that way. So we all have an idea what irony is. Okay? The third one, of course, we just mentioned a few minutes, was fulfillment. In fact, we don't have time to do it, but if you would look through this passage we just read, and you know the scripture well in the Old Testament, and particularly if you know a lot about the Psalms, what you're going to see is phrase after phrase after phrase of little snippets coming out of the book of Psalms that here are being used in Jesus' death. And we'll see a few of them. The most common one that we see, the most common is going to be Psalm 22, that many of us are familiar with, where it describes a righteous man who's going through the suffering and the things that he's going through and the horrors that are there. And so what we have is this is a very important thing. So that third one is fulfillment. And so our passage this morning, what we're going to see, it's a very, very thing. I want you to be thinking of those three things, thinking about where you see fulfillment coming in. Think about it when you talk about irony because there's a lot of it in this passage. So let's pick up in verse 16 where I started reading before, and let's look at a couple of verses real quick. Verse 16, then the soldiers led him, Jesus, away into the courtyard, that is the headquarters, and they called the whole company together. Um, And it says, then they dressed him in a purple robe. Even that's a little odd. As you know, or maybe you don't, purple was the most difficult dye in the ancient world to do that. Mostly kings and rulers and very, very rich people could afford to have purple dye. And so what happens is that the fact is unusual here that here's this guy that's already been scourged once by the Jewish leaders and now by the Roman leaders. This guy, Jesus, is a mess. He's bleeding all across his back. He's got got thorns on him, and they're smacking him with it, and he's bleeding all through his head. And yet they put a purple robe on him, which is odd because most people who've got that expensive a robe don't want to have blood all over it. So it's a little unusual. But it really, if you look at the irony of it, it's like he really deserves to have, in then sense, a purple robe of beauty. And so it said this. So what happened? He called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And there's the great irony. He really is the King of the Jews. The religious leaders don't get it. They don't understand it. They won't accept it, though some will later after the resurrection. But they call him king of the Jews. Isn't that a joke? He looks like a bloody, you know, like a clown. They don't realize that the king of the Jews is really the one that is here. Hail, king of the Jews. They kept hitting him with the, on his head with a reed and spitting on him, which is a sign, an ancient sign. People would do that just to show absolute scorn, contempt upon people. And so it said they were paying him homage, excuse me, getting down on their knees. They were paying him homage, and they he mocked him. They stripped him of his purple robe, put on his clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. This passage is so amazing, I mean, so many ways. Because you keep thinking, if you only knew, if you only understood who this man was, all this mocking him, all this laughing him, spitting upon him, Do you not know who this man is? And of course, they they don't. And many of the rulers, they don't want to know. And yet Mark writes this with a lot of simplicity, very, very terse, saying, can you imagine that the one who came to save the world is going to experience such sorrow, such suffering, and such loss? So notice what we have in verse 21. Then they forced the man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. His name was Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know, it's interesting. Scholars look at this and say, where did these guys get into the story? I mean, what is it necessary? It doesn't seem that important. The other Gospels don't have it. But here it's important because he's making this point. Here's this guy. He lives in Cyrene. That's in North Africa. And he's coming to Jerusalem to Passover. So, in other words, he's either going on a long journey around or he's taking a boat up for Passover. And he's spending, by the way, a lot of money to get there, to be at the Passover deal. And he's just minding his own business walking down the street. And he gets tapped on the shoulder. Roman law said if you're walking, a Roman soldier's going, and somebody comes up a Roman and he taps you on the shoulder, he just said, You're just been part of impressment. That is, that guy, that Roman soldier can ask you to carry all his stuff for a mile. That's where we get the thing of, Jesus said, go a second mile. If he calls you to do one mile, do a second mile. Impressment was, they could say you'd have to carry his luggage or his gear or his weapons, whatever it was. And then in one mile, you got somebody else. You tapped him on the shoulder and he had to do it. The law said you had to do it. And so what we have in this passage here in verse 21, they forced the man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon, one of the most common names in the ancient times, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And it's like, here's this poor guy that's come a long way to worship, and all of a sudden, he's carrying the stuff for Jesus. Notice this. They brought Jesus to the place. And so here's this interesting thing. They asked Jesus to do it. Now, the odd thing is, maybe not oddish, it's not a way, but normally a person would carry their own beam. They'd have the beam that the Romans would set up, and then you had a cross beam. Often these were in the shape of, like we'd call a T, that top part of it. The person would get it and often hold it, and they'd have to take it and carry it. By this time, though, Jesus had been beat so badly by the Jewish leaders and then by the Roman leaders He's already lost a lot of blood, and he's not strong enough to carry it. And so they grab this guy. Hey, you, what's your name, buddy? Simon. Hey, we got another Jew here that needs to be killed. Go take his stuff and carry it. And So Simon does this. And what's interesting here is we don't know anything really about these guys except one thing. Mark seems to be writing this around 66, 67, 68 A.D. in Rome. And it's interesting that in the Roman church at this point, there's a well-known guy named Rufus. And it may very well be that what's happening here, this guy Rufus ends up being in Rome, and he was maybe telling Mark some of the things he was there when his father had to carry that beam out to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where Jesus was going to die. And so verse 22, it said, his name was Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place or place of the skull. And 23 is interesting. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And it's interesting. Why did he not take it? I mean, I'm sure he's thirsty. He's been losing blood. And things are really bad for him. But you know, you remember Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He kept asking, Father, is there any other way that this cup could be taken from me? Second time, is there any way that this cup could be taken? No. The third time, is there any? No, there's not. And the willingness of Jesus to take that cup of suffering. And now here's a literal cup that's come his way. And they're saying, listen, here's this cup. And so if you notice in the passage, it said they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. Reading some of the Jewish writings, it sounds like they understood that when you put myrrh together with wine, it was kind of had a, like an analgesic kind of thing where you didn't, it didn't hurt so bad. And so they said used to be there would be Jewish women who would be standing along these people coming by. They would give them some of this because they knew if they're going to the cross that they needed all the help they could get because the pain was going to be awful. And what's interesting, when that happens, it said they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. It was a nice thing to do, but he did not take it. And I wonder if maybe what it is, is Jesus saying, you know what, my father's told me that I'm going to drink this cup to the end. And I'm not going to take it. I'm going to take the full force of sin that's going to be upon me. And I'm not going to take anything. We would say, take some aspirin, do this, get it shot. It's like, no, I'm not getting any of this. I'm going to go it. And so what happens here? It says, he talks about here, it said they didn't take it. Then, look at verse 24. The story of the crucifixion in the gospel of Mark is basically told in four words. Then they crucified him. If you think about this is like the most important, the most significant, the most amazing thing that the here you would have the Son of God, going through this suffering, willing to take kind thing, and it's all described in like four words. Then they crucified him. For the Romans are there, there's just one more Jew. We kill them all the time. What's the big deal about it? As many Jews, you can get as many Jews as you want. And yet they didn't realize that this Jew, this Jewish man, is the Son of God. This is the Son of Man. This is the person, the most, Injustice, and the most incredible injustice the world would ever know is that an, a man like Jesus, who never sinned, was going to have to have such experience. And so Jesus said, no, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to have the wine. And, and then probably he just, maybe Jesus is not doing it. Because remember when he was in with his men uh, there at the Last Supper, when they, he, Jesus made this interesting statement. Remember, he said, I'm not going to eat or drink until I eat again to the Messianic banquet with my disciples. So maybe he's like, "Nope, I know you want it. That's nice of you to want to give me something because I'm suffering so much, but I'm not going to take it. And I'm not going to eat until I get to eat with my Father in heaven with all the believers who know Christ over the centuries. And so it's a remarkable passage. Then it says they crucify them. What an injustice. And what's so amazing to think about is how really could you put Jesus on the cross? I mean, you think, you know, you read, for example, uh, uh, John chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word's And it goes on. In Him, verse four, is life. It's like here is the one who is the creator of the world. Here is the one who not just is alive, but is life itself. How could the one who is life itself, who creates the world, ever die? But he does. And by the way, if you think about it, this is where this whole issue becomes a thing. of the early church of how is it that Jesus is fully human but also fully God? And this is all part of what was going on in the third and fourth century of trying to get their arms around of who is this incredible man named Jesus in Nazareth. He seems to be fully God. He is. But he seems to be truly human. He is. So do we believe in two Jesuses? No, one Jesus course this is going to be very part of what's going on now notice what you have here it talks about the, the suffering that he went through then they crucified him and they t- divided his clothes casting lots right again out of the book of psalms Again and again, if you look at, by the way, if you have a Bible that's got a lot of notes in the bottom, you can go through and look at the different passages. Many of them are not direct things, but there are passages that Jesus would have known, people that there who were Jews would understand it as well. And so what you have is you've got this amazing thing going on, what Jesus is doing. And so if you notice, by the way, it just said in that thing, then they crucified him. I don't know how many of you saw the movie that um, Mel... Who was it? Mel Gibson. Thank you. I wanted to say Mel Brooks, but that was wrong. <laughs> wrong guy. The movie, The Passion of the Christ, I don't know if you saw that, but that was a powerful movie. I mean, you know, I found myself wincing at times as those lashes were going on Jesus' back and the blood was flying in and stuff. And when you look at that, you think, that is incredible. That is amazing that some would go through that suffering. What's interesting here is Mark does not even discuss it. Not because he's ashamed of it, but his point is he has come for a purpose. We're not going to go through all the things that he's going through. It was awful and it was wrong. But what he's saying is, this is what has happened. And it says, now when it was nine in the morning, I'm reading in verse 25, when they had crucifi- that it was crucif- when they crucified him. And the great thing we talk about when we talk about irony is in verse 26. The inscription of the charge written against him, this was very common in the ancient world, was the king of the Jews. Isn't that a joke? No, it's not a joke. It's the reality of who this person is. Verse 27 Then they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. You know, it's interesting. Just about five chapters back, we had. Jesus was going and two guys came up and said, Uh, you know, my mother wants to ask a question for you. What's that? Um, can my two sons, one be on your left and one be on the right? And Jesus said, You know, it's not me to give that to you. Your father does that. But you know, there you had two, I hate to say two knuckleheads when they're but two guys that should have known better. And here you've got now two guys on either side of him. And it said, they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him. Now notice it's very interesting that Mark would say this. It's not just the religious leaders or the Romans that are doing this. Even people who go by hey, they threw a few insults in there as well, as Jesus was there and Jesus was dying. And so they were shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who demolished the sanctuary, build it in three days. Go ahead, save yourself, come down the cross. In that that way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him to one another, saying, Huh, saved others. Can't save himself. Let that Messiah, or yours may say, the Christ, the King of Israel, come on down now from the cross. We can see and believe. We love to believe in you. Just prove it. Jump off the cross. Why don't you? Right now. I mean, you're going to build a temple in just three days. Why don't you jump? I don't know about you, but if I had the power that Jesus had, and I was suffering an unbearable thing. I want to tell you, I would say, I'd kill everybody around me, anybody that ever talked to me bad. You know, I would put on the Superman thing and just start cleaning shop. And yet Jesus had all that power and he refused to use it. His role was to come to give his life as the ultimate sacrifice for human sin. And because of that, he would take whatever that suffering was, whatever it was going to be. You know, let me finish this part section real quick. It said, then he said, verse 33, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the morning. At three, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Lemus of sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That verse is one of the most unusual and difficult verses. It's like, was there a split in the Trinity? No, there was not. Was there a sense where Jesus felt abandoned? It must have been because his father was willing to say, this is the plan. There is no other plan. You will have to go through this. It'll feel like you're going through it alone. And he says, why have you forsaken me? Verse 35, some of them standing there said, look, he's calling for Elijah. They're not sure why they thought of Elijah, but maybe Eloi, Elijah are so close that people thought, maybe Elijah was going to come and save him. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine on a reed, offering him a drink. Let's see if Elijah comes down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Let's we'll stop right there. Remember we said there was three things that we were looking at, but there's three things I want us to look at of what Jesus did not do. If we look at this passage, three things that Jesus did not do. First of all, is Jesus refused to retaliate when he had every opportunity to do so. Turn with me real quick to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have your Bible with you, just keep going right, okay? Keep moving through 2 Timothy, through Titus, and then you'll get to you get to 1 Peter, unless they changed it in my Bible, but they didn't. 1 Peter chapter 3. What's interesting, as Peter writes this, you wonder, is he thinking a lot about what happened there at the cross? But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, this is what he writes. Now, finally, all of you, excuse me, finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic. You should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Many of us would be more than willing to give a kick. But he's saying, instead, give them a blessing, since you were called for this. And then what he does, like so many of the scripture writers did, like the apostles, he quotes a little bit loosely, but the same point in Psalm 34. For the one who wants to love life and to seek good days must keep his tongue for evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to the request but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil so we said there's three things that we need to look at it says three things that Jesus did not do number one is Jesus did not try to get any way to hurt those against them there was no sense of revenge he could have cursed they said often when there was going on when when the people were being crucified that God well people. Men and women on there were screaming, they were cursing, they were calling down curses from God for the people for what they're doing. Jesus has none of it. Now look at the second thing that Jesus did and we find that in verse 33. In verse 33 we have this said, it said when it was noon in darkness, now let's drop down a little bit verse 37. Jesus let out a loud excuse me, let out a loud cry and he breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. One little verse that is so, so significant. As you know, when we talk about the fact that there were different levels that you go to into the temple, this is probably the first level go from the, the court of the women into the court of the men. And probably right at there, there was this massive, huge, embroidered thing that supposedly came from Babylon. That was gorgeous. That, that shut the door. It kept people from going any further out where the priests would go and then ultimately the high priest in the day of atonement. And yet there it says, he let out a loud cry. He breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom, not bottom to top. Now, if you have two guys, maybe who cut at the bottom and said, you take one end and I'll take the other and we'll rip it apart. That'd be very difficult to do. But it was just the opposite. There's nobody there. It was very tall. But from the top to bottom, and it's God speaking in an action where people could look at that and say, uh-oh, that doesn't look good, does it? No, it doesn't. Because really what's going on here, it's saying, you know, the high priest in Israel could go into that holy place one time the Day of Atonement and give sacrifices for the atonement for the sins of the people. And only priests could even be in that outer section of it. And what God is saying here, you know what? Two things he's doing. One, it's saying, do you see what just happened to this temple, this temple curtain that's so important to you? It's just been wrecked. And it's a preview of what's coming in 70 AD. In 70 AD, this temple that is so beautiful, that Herod and Pitt and made larger and better and so amazing, it's going down. And what you have here is it's saying not only is the fact that there's this coming, but the other thing is it's saying, you know what? Everything has just changed. And before that, people would come. They'd bring their offerings. They'd bring it to the priest. The animal would be sacrificed. They would offer it up. And then in the Day of Atonement, the sins would be covered. And it's saying, you know what just happened? Everything just changed. There's access for every person who, in faith of Christ, will come to Jesus. You don't have to come through this way. You don't have to come through that door and this door. You can go directly to Jesus and talk to him. This is a very important passage. Look at me, if you would. Turn quickly, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, the only one we don't know who actually wrote, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he picks up this idea again of the fact that the destruction, not, excuse me, the tearing of the temple from the top down was important. So in Hebrews chapter 10, he said this, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he's inaugurated for us, through the curtain, and then he adds this little phrase, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then his, his application is, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our body washed in pure water. He clearly gets the idea of this. He's saying the fact that that temple that was rent, the fact that the city was, I mean, the temple was going to be gone in 70 AD, it's this idea, we now have the privilege of direct action, of direct Going to be with God and to, and to have our relationship with Him. That is crucial. That's something the Old Testament people did not have. But every believer who's here today, who's a Christian, has a right. They don't have to go to a priest to go have the priest take them there. You can go directly as we speak to God in prayer, as we cry out to Him. And so He says, that's what we're going to do. And so the second thing was the temple. The third one we see comes up in verse 39. We're back, if you would, if we go to 1st. And we go back to um, Mark, chapter 15, verse 39. It talks about, then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. And then verse 39, such an unusual verse. When the centurion who was standing opposite saw the way he he, he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. What's interesting, a pagan Roman centurion who was in charge of the guys that were killing Jesus is the first one here in the Gospel of Mark that gets it. Not a Jewish guy, not a rabbi, not anybody else. A guy who was a Roman pagan centurion looked upon what had happened and the most strangest strangest you know, thing that he had ever seen at a crucifixion and he goes, whoa. <laughs> whoa. This this has got to be the Son of God. Did he understand that in the full understanding that you and I have? No, because we can look back and see the fullness of what that means for Jesus to be the Son of God. But his point is, this is not like every other person we've crucified here. This has got to be the Son of God. And so you have this thing, the irony of the story is, yet you know, really, he is the King of the Jews. He really is Israel's Messiah, and he really is the Son of God. And because of that, We can come boldly. So here's the question to leave you. Do you feel like you have, in your own self, the ability to go to God through prayer and to be able to talk, to be with, to bring your request to God in heaven? Sometimes we don't because we're lazy. Sometimes we don't because we think, I've prayed and prayed and prayed about this and nothing's happened, so what's the point? There's other people, it's like, you know what? I've got this problem, I've got this addiction, I've got this issue going on, I have this sin that I hate, but you know I also love it, and I don't want to give it up, and so I'm embarrassed to come to the Lord, and the Lord's saying, come. The price of admission is my life. I gave my life for you so you could have a relationship with me. And if you're not coming to me in that relationship, in prayer to me, you are missing so much. Yes, I know you've sinned. Yes, I know you continue to sin. Yes, I know you fail. That's what forgiveness is all about. There is at the core of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. Every time we come to this table, we're reminded that we have forgiveness of sin as we come in repentance and faith. And we have that access to our God. Do you have that? Do you know that? Are you living that? Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We're talking about a situation, Father, that is so tragic in one hand, and yet we recognize this is all part of your plan. Father, here we are close, coming up to Easter next week. We pray that during this time that we often call Holy Week that you would be preparing our hearts both to be able to realize the brokenness, the sadness, the tragedy, the death of Christ but prepare our hearts for the reality that he is risen and he is risen indeed. Help our hearts to be open and ready, Father, to be able to serve you and to rejoice in who you are and what you've done. We ask this in Jesus' name.